0: I don't think guilt is rational. That's the truth. I I don't think it's a rational feeling. I I think that guilt, you know, similar like Sarah, you said, it's a feeling of, there's something happening that I feel bad about. You know, there's something happening that I wish wasn't happening that, you know, I feel bad that there's somebody else suffering. I feel bad that there's somebody else who's not doing well. I was chosen to do well by, you know, again, this feeling of like, It's out of my control. I really didn't do anything to make this happen more for me than somebody else. You know, we both underwent treatment. We're both doing what we're supposed to be doing. I survived, she didn't, why?
1: Welcome to On Air with Chai, a podcast that inspires, brings hope, shows resilience and strength. From being diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease at the age of 22, to going to Camp Simcha and becoming the Director of Family Services in the High Lifeline head office in New York, Dr. Cheryl Book talks about her journey and what led her down the path of giving back and helping others in a similar situation. Don't forget to share with your friends, subscribe, and leave us that five-star review. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of On Air 5. Today, I am joined, obviously, by my trusty co-host, Morty Rothman. Hello, everybody. We have a very special guest co-host today, Sarah Bloom, who is one of our directors of Family Services. Hi, everybody. And today, we have another very special guest, all the way from New York, who is, I guess, Sarah's counterpart, we'd say, uh, Director of Family Services
2: of High Lifeline in New York, you, Sarah? Hi,
0: everyone.
2: Welcome. Thank you for speaking with us today. Hi. So, uh, <laughs> Hi. So,
0: um. <laughs> looking forward. So,
2: can we call you? What, what do we? What do we call you? Do we call you Doc? Do we call you uh, Cheryl? What can we call you?
0: We have Doctor Cheryl. We have Doctor Book. That's for my parents. Um, but the rest of us are really Doctor Cheryl works. Cheryl works. Okay, we'll go. With, we'll go with Doctor Cheryl. That's
2: that's perfect. Okay, so so Doctor Cheryl, could could you tell us? Uh, I guess in your own words, just. You know, there's so much, there's so much talent and there's so many interesting stories at High Lifeline. Um, could you share yours? How did you get to High Lifeline? How are you in the position that you're in currently? Um, and, you know, start as early as, as you want. Sure.
0: Okay. So um, I think I actually have a unique story to the staff on High Lifeline. Um, I don't think there are too many people on staff that have um, a similar story. Uh, when I was 22, I was actually diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. Um, I had undergone treatment and actually was introduced to High Lifeline in the hospital and was offered to go to Camp Simcha, which at first I was completely against. I was like, I'm 22 years old. I don't need to be in camp. I don't need to be going as a camper. Um, that's just crazy. I've been at the Vision Head and other camps. Like, this is just, no, I'm, you know, I, I really don't need this. Um, with the convincing of several volunteers, several doctors, I did end up going to camp, and it was literally life changing for me. Um, Camp Simcoe was, as my parents said, the first camp they didn't pay for, but the camp that I loved the most out of all camps that I've ever been to as a kid. It really.
2: And how old? How old were you when you went to camp? (laughs) You were older already. But, But but it's an interesting point that you made, which was, you know, it took a lot of people to get you there. Right, it took it took your doctors, took your volunteers, took took yeah. I, I'm sure a lot of convincing to take a 22 year old uh, woman and get her to go to camp for 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 a couple of weeks. And um, I think that speaks a lot to 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 Chai Lifeline that some people don't even realize some of the underpinnings of how much it takes to actually convince someone to go to camp. You think oh everybody wants to go to camp simple. like that's just it's amazing. And really, it takes a community of people to. Um, to, to um, uh, I mean, often to to, to push somebody to, to go. Anyway, I digress. Go ahead. Sorry. Yep.
0: Um, I think the truth is I didn't really realize what I was missing. I thought I was doing fine. I was doing great. You know, I had the support of friends, I had the support of my family, um, and I didn't realize I was missing that support of other people who got it. And when I got to camp, it was the first time I really was talking to other girls who were around my age um, and who had been in similar situations. Um, I'll give you just one example of that. Like, I was near the end of my treatment by the time I went to camp. Camp, I think that year was in probably August time, and I was finishing treatment by September. And it sounds crazy, but I was, like, nervous to to end treatment because I kind of knew. As a patient, I knew my job. I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew that we were taking care of this. I knew we were fighting this, and, and you know, I was getting rid of the cancer. Um, and as we approached the end, I kind of got nervous that like, okay, now what? What do I do now? And I thought this was like a crazy thought until I realized that I met other girls who were feeling the exact same way. I had one girl in my bunk who said to me, that was the first time I went to therapy, was at the end of therapy, you know, at the end of treatment. And um, it's something that now in my job, which I guess um, I use a lot with parents. The idea that after that, you know, treatment's over is actually emotionally sometimes even more difficult than the during, you know, and it's an idea that you don't necessarily think, you think it's kind of counterintuitive. Your thought would be treatment's over. Your back's normal.
1: It takes over your life so in that measure, right? So you're in the hospital, you're doing your treatments, your schedules, your life is revolved around this treatment. So yeah, I mean, you kind of get set in your routine and your other life gets put in the back burner and you gotta kind of fit it back into your normal again. Right. So,
2: right. so, you're, so you go to camp and it was an amazing experience.
0: Amazing experience. After um, camp was over, I actually started graduate school that year. So really a weird juxtaposition of uh, being a camper to start in graduate school. And graduate um, school
2: in, in which studies?
0: In in psychology. Um, and when I finished graduate school, the first thought I thought was, I want to work for high-level capacity. I want to be a part of this. I want to do something for children who have been sick, these children who have gone through um, treatments, And I ended up applying as an intern, actually, for the High Lifeline uh, Crisis Team. And I started interning for I think about a year and a half or so. And And then.
2: And while you were in mm -hmm. school, were you volunteering at all, or you had no involvement?
0: Um, I did have. I was volunteering. I had a big little sister. I was a big sister to a girl, actually, from Clemson Plus Special, and so I was definitely doing that. I had gone back to camp for as a counselor. I then went back to camp as a division head. And I really kind of went up the ranks in camp and really got to experience all the different facets of camp.
2: Are we allowed to ask what year this
0: was? The year I went to camp as, I was, I think I went to camp as a counselor about 2000. I was diagnosed in 2001, a a counselor, I believe 2004, 2005 um yeah started interning for high lifeline i think 2009
2: wow okay yeah. and what was that experience like like uh i guess you so you ended up seeing so many facets of high lifeline right you saw uh right. the camp as a as a camper as a counselor then a big sister now getting involved in the crisis team which is almost like its own division
0: 100 percent. 100 percent. um I think that it was fascinating, you know, realizing there's so much more to High Lifeline than most people even know. You know, each person probably knows their little part. Whether they're a Camp Simcha counselor, you know Camp Simcha, where if you're somebody who's a volunteer in the hospital, you know the hospitals. Um, It was very unique in that I really did get to know a whole bunch of different parts of the organization and realize the scope of the organization. Um, Until then, I would say most, you know, I for sure did not know it, and most people around me did not know really what Highlight one does and how far reaching they are with um, children who have some sort of illness, you know, whether it's cancer or a chronic illness.
2: And and being a survivor, I'm sure peppered the entire lens of everything that you're looking through when you're seeing all of these, um, all of these situations, whether it's being a big sister, um, or whether you're in the crisis team, like, it must have, I mean, obviously, it affects you for in everything. Would you say uh, how would you say that it impacted your work in let's say on the crisis team?
0: Um, I think it gave it certain amounts of understanding, a certain amount of sensitivity, certain amount of recognizing that even if I'm not sharing my own personal story, I kind of got it to some degree, you know Bareshem not to the degree that somebody who's in actual crisis um is dealing with, but I was able to a little bit understand a little bit understand the language, a little bit understand some of the feelings um but you know again kind of still kept me a little bit separate because you know thankfully that wasn't should, um, an area that i was in
1: how much should going um, to the camp personally? affect your decision to join High lifeline and i guess ultimately end you up as director of family services or camp simcha sorry uh,
0: completely Camp simcha, you know it was my involvement in camp simcha that made me say this is this is what I want. You know, I always knew I wanted to work with children. That was before I even started graduate school. Um, interestingly, for some reason, which I have no idea to this day, because I had never worked with the cancer population before at all. Um, but in my graduate school essay, I had written that I would like to do something with the cancer population, which is strange, because I honestly, like I said, I've never done anything with it. Um, but it was really once I was in camp that I said, this is this is what I want. This is, you know, my dream is to be working." And giving back and doing something in this in this area. So, uh, so getting back to so you're an intern now at mm-hmm. Crisis Team, and uh, right.
2: what was that experience like? And then, you know, I guess moving along, how did you how did you come to where we
0: are? Right. So, Crisis was it was a whole different world. It, it, it's it's a world of just you're constantly on alert, you're constantly involved in situations that you just can't conceive even you know, very often. Um, we had, I was involved in, you know, Libby Kletzky at the time and, and some of these worldwide tragedies and then some of the tragedies that were really just more personal of, uh, you know, family members. Um, it's devastating, to be honest. Crisis was a devastating part of my life. <laughs> it was very hard. You felt you were able to a little bit alleviate a little bit of the pain um, and a little bit keep people, you know, focused on what they need to do at that time, um, but it was, it was very hard. I think crisis was a very hard time. And um, serious, sense <laughs> Okay. Um, and, you know, I had done it for about a year and change. And at that point, when Tony Cabot, who used to be in my position, was leaving, Rabbi Scholar offered me to take over this position, and which basically was running the clinical department you know for the um illness department and that was much more i think what i ultimately wanted to do and and you know the world i wanted to so he just
2: offered department. a few huh that's uh that's so interesting because he um you know we, we had him on the podcast uh in season one yes um two episodes we we did and we could probably we probably could have done another two episodes with him and it's so interesting because yeah. one of the things that he talks about that is the hallmark of high Lifeline is the just get it done attitude that exists. He, he, it's, and, and it's interesting because it started from him and I'm so impressed that like he just he, he must have seen you and been like, she's probably perfect and just offered the role to you and, and must have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's amazing. What a story.
3: I, I'm curious how you how you protected yourself in that you must've had to work out how to turn your experience from something that could be triggering to something that could be empowering and push you forward. How do you do, how do you make that distinction?
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that I struggled a lot with um, in the beginning was this feeling of uh, survivor guilt. There was definitely an issue of of survivor guilt. Um, There was definitely an issue of, like you said, kind of, you know, uh, making my story not be what's leaving everything in what I'm doing. You know, Um, the survivor guilt piece was a big deal for me until I actually spoke to a dean of mine in graduate school. And he said to me, um, he goes, do you believe, did you ask why when you were diagnosed? And I said, no, because why not me versus somebody else? I said, I I really kind of said, what you know, Hashem wants me, this is what Hashem wants me um he happens to be a Jewish um guy. He happens to be a Jewish guy. And I had said to him, you know, that's what a shaman did, that's what I, shall want to do. I, I didn't ask why. Why me. So he goes, So why are you now asking why you? Why are you asking now, you know, why why did you survive and not somebody else? Because clearly for whatever reason you were supposed to be you were supposed to survive. And another person who, who didn't, for whatever reason, that wasn't, you know, what their um, life story was, and so he kind of flipped really the whole concept in my head, and and gave me a different perspective on it, and that definitely helped with that realm. And then, as far as really just reminding myself that this wasn't my story, that I was able to take my story to use it to get, um, again to understand and have perspective on what people were feeling, but recognizing that really at the end of the day, every single person does go through their own story, and every single person has their own, um, you know, challenges and strengths and weaknesses and, and all of that, and so I'm use, able to use what I've gone through as something to help me in that, but not define exactly what I'm doing, because at the end of the day, really somebody else's problem. Feel-
3: but uh, you talked about the guilt. The guilt is a funny thing and it affects everyone. Like a parent has guilt because they feel they want to, I wish I could take this away from my child. Right. I would take it instead of them in a heartbeat and, and guilt is such a non-productive right. feeling, right. It doesn't get us anywhere. It just yeah, it's a downward spiral. But I love how, I love how you handled
2: it. You, it looks, It. you know, she handled it in two ways. She went to an expert. Yeah. She talked to somebody else and, and, Give her a different perspective um, and then to take it and look at you know so many things like I myself struggled with uh, with anxiety as, as a kid and to be able to use that and have that uh, propel your and, and be a strength is 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 a matter of a change of perspective and I think that, right. that that's so
3: important yeah and, and it's it's not it's it doesn't just go without saying and that could be one of those things that rabbi scholar saw and that's why he he chose you because that's not something that's easy to learn. Okay.
0: Um, and it's interesting because I do use my story at times. You know, I really, for the most part, it's something that, like, um, you know, I'm not what we call poster child cancer kid. I'm not the one who would, you know, introduce myself within five minutes. of Knowing me, you'll, you'll know that I had been sick. Um, but when I feel like it's important, I, I I do use it. You know, when I'm in a classroom and there's a bunch of teenage girls completely dramatically, you know, crying and, and they can't really find a way to calm down when their friend was just diagnosed with Hodgkins. And that's really where I usually keep it. Um, it has to really be the same diagnosis, um, just because I do feel Hodgkins is different than a lot of other diagnoses. But um, I was in one to classroom where the, the girls were just totally distraught and, and no matter what I was saying, it was not calming them down. And at that point I did say, you know, I, I, I want to share something with you. But at that point, I did tell them a little of my story and told them that, you know, Barsham, I am married. I have three children. And, and you know, your friend's going to be, you know, a marriage going to be okay, too. And that was, their mouths dropped and, and all of a sudden the crime stopped. And they were able to, and I feel like it is a tool that I can use when it's appropriate, but recognizing the times that it's appropriate and the times that's it's really not, you know.
1: I find it interesting though, because you mentioned the survivor's guilt. I always associate survivor's guilt with like massive accidents, like horrible things happening to multiple people at once. And you happen to be the one or two people that actually survived that. And you're like wondering to yourself, why am I the one out of all these people? Where with, when you're, when you're sick like this and you have a, and you're dealing with cancer, you're dealing with treatments it's kind of, it's not you and everybody else, it's you and your treatment. So how, how does that survivor's guilt really kick in or how, how does this come about, I guess? And when you're, when you're dealing with these kinds of illnesses?
0: I, I don't think guilt is rational. That's the truth. I, I don't think it's a rational feeling. I, I think that guilt, you know, similar like Sarah, you said, it, it's a feeling of there's something happening that I feel bad about. You know, there's something happened that I wish wasn't happening that, you know, I feel bad that there's somebody else suffering. I feel bad that there's somebody else who's not doing well. I was chosen to do well by, you know, again, this feeling of like, it's out of my control. I really didn't do anything to make this happen more for me than somebody else. You know, we both underwent treatment. We're both doing what we're supposed to be doing. I survived. She didn't. Why? You know, um, so I don't think it's a rational thing. I think it's more of just a feeling of, like, I, I don't want this bad thing to be happening to somebody else. It's, it's a, you know, you're, you're completely empathetic. I think it's, it's, it's a, a, where you really can put yourself into the other person's shoes in some way and say, like, I just wish it wasn't ending the way that theirs is ending, you know, different than, than mine did, I, I think, you know?
2: So, so you've gone through this, um, you know, horrible situation. And would you say that this propels you um, and pushes you in this in this role uh, to, to do this more, like more than otherwise? Like, you, it, with, with, is the guilt the factor in your in your daily workings with some of the families?
0: I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I don't think that it's necessarily the guilt that propels you. It's more the feeling of the rationale behind the guilt, meaning the rationale behind let's say what this you know dean of mine had told me there's a reason that i i i did you know there is a reason so let me do something good with that or let me then propel that you so know? Not, how, how
2: do you how do you separate yourself how do you because you know for me i always tell myself well okay so i i often get asked actually by donors especially they're saying they'll say to me like you know, you must deal with such sad situations all the time. You must be down and depressed. And I say, no, actually the opposite. Like, yes, we're dealing with sad situations, but we're bringing hope and happiness. And it's all where you put your focus. If you put your focus on the sad, then okay, you'll be sad. But if you put your focus on the happy, you can, you'll be happier. And and it's a question of of, of a mindset, but I'm curious for you because you must come across young women who are the same age as you were, who are in the same, you know, very similar circumstances. And, and, and how do you cope with that? How is it not me? It's not my family. Like that, that's pretty close to home.
0: Uh, I think that there are times where it definitely hits closer to home than others. You know um, there are definitely those situations, but again, I think that at those times, the ones that really do hit very close to home, then I feel like, okay, then my, maybe my story in some way can be helping them. And those might be the ones where I do, again, share what I've been through if it's helpful for them. Um, but overall, when it's really not as close to home, then I'm able to say, okay, you know what, that, that's not my story. That wasn't what happened with me. That wasn't my, um, you know, situation. And, and do try to say, okay, well, how can I help you? You know, I think it's similar to what you were saying, where it, it's focusing on, I'm here to be able to say what I can do to make this a little bit better for you. You know, I I can't fix the situation, but I can at least take a little bit of the anxiety or the sadness or the, um, you know, negativity away from you by trying to empower you and empower, you know, you to realize that there is hope. There is, you know, life after cancer. There is life, you know, after all of this, and you hopefully will get there too.
3: I'm, I'm hearing something, you know, behind what you're saying um the element of not feeling like you have control like when when clients find like what like you were saying why did this happen and could i be doing something differently and why me and a lot of issues about how everyone is now telling you what to do you don't get any choice in the matter and and I see it I see it as an issue for many many clients and there's also um, who they choose to be around because well you never know if you're like gonna start looking at percentages and maybe I don't want to be part of that group and I don't want to see other people suffering and 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 I wonder if it's something that you have seen as well both with clients and case managers about how they handle, the lack of control over their medical situation.
0: Sure. I'd say it, especially with like new diagnoses, I think that the first thing you see, whether it's the parents or whether the kids, it's this feeling of like my whole life has just spiraled out of control. And um, I see it a lot with the parents actually, where all of a sudden everybody is telling them what to do. They're getting advice from everyone um, and they kind of feel like, I'm no longer in charge here. I'm like the mother and people are yet bringing food to my house. And people are telling me that, okay, I have to send my kids with volunteers right now. I'm not ready to send my kids with volunteers right now. Or I must send my kids, again, let's go to Camp Simcha. You know, I have to send them to Camp Simcha. And my child said, I'm not ready to be sending them away for two weeks, you know, to camp w- without their doctor, who I meet in the room with them at all times, you know. Um, so I definitely do this feeling. And, and I think one of the things we constantly stress with them is the importance of being able to say to, to people around you what it is that you do want to still have some semblance of control over. It. You know, the whole idea of control, you know, how much do we really actually have? Yeah, you know, we don't really have that much control in life. There are certain things we can control, you know, and if I tell parents, if you want no nobody to bring over food, then you're allowed to say, that's not helpful to me. You know, what's really helpful to me is if you would take my kids out on Sunday afternoon, that would be helpful to me. But You know, the one thing I would really like to do for my kids is still make them dinner, you know, every night. Or whatever it is, take back the control where you can in the small areas. Recognize where you can't, you know, and the things that you still can have some control over, definitely do. And and with kids, it's the same thing, you know. Their life feels so out of control. Even when you're packing for the hospital, the suggestion I always say is let them be involved. Let them pick what the pajamas they're taking with them. Let them pick. Is there something they want to put? bring with them a special pillow, a special blanket, um, pictures of the family, whatever it is, but give them a little sense of control. So they want an IV in the right hand, the left hand, um, all those things. Just they feel a little bit like they're they're making a decision. They're still involved here. Not everything is happening to them, but they get to make you know some decision with it.
2: You know, and, and now, Sarah, you kind of brought us to kind of the next direction of where I think we should take this podcast, which is your day to day workings as a leader within high lifeline. And, um, you know, that's a great question about control. Um, and I'm, I'm, I am curious though. So that's, that that's kind of an outset or an outlook, and I'm sure that you imbue that into all of the case managers that work in the New York region and in high lifeline in general. Um, but I'm curious, uh, as, as a, as a leader and a, a director of a whole slew of very capable, caring, giving, uh, incredible case managers that exist within the framework of High lifeline which i argue is probably the most important thing that High lifeline offers the jewish community is our case management You're um, a
3: scholar.
2: <laughs> yeah um, and you know a- a- as a leader do you have a certain uh, way of, of of managing of oversight of outlook what's your perspective on on i guess ensuring that the case managers stay focused are able to continue to do the work that they do. Um, how do you motivate? I'm, I'm just curious, all that on all that on, on how do you, how do you work with your team?
3: Okay,
0: so I, I think that I'm very lucky because I think my team has a lot of inner motivation. You know, everybody, I would say really who works for High Life. Run and I'm assuming you guys see this in Canada too, but there's a passion. You, you know, I don't think that anyone could really do this job, Um, And especially be a case manager and deal with families day in and day out without um, like a passion for what they're doing and a feeling that what they're doing is making a difference and that they want to be making a difference. So I I think my job's a little bit easier just because of that. They really do. I I would actually
2: argue, I would actually argue with you a little bit on that because I find, I find passionate people are often, you know, they care. Mm -hmm. So if you guys are not on the same page, and you have there things come up and and it actually could be a, a, a lot. They could create a lot of politics and a lot of issues. Welcome to New
0: York meetings. I mean, yes, we have a lot <laughs> of passionate people um, and there's a lot of opinions. So I think our our uh, definitely passion is our biggest strength, our biggest weakness in a sense. Um, the biggest strength is really like you said, everybody cares, but it also comes with everybody has real opinions um, and we and we talk them out. That's the truth. And I'm willing to hear somebody else's opinion if you have a real. Um, rationalization behind that opinion, if you have a real reason why you feel that that's the way to go, I'm willing to listen to it. And we're willing to try it, you know, for the most part, unless it's something that, you know, we can't financially do for somebody or whether it's something that we, um, you know, policy-wise, as far as an organization, we can't do. Other than that, if if you have a good rationalization of why you want to do something and why you think it's going to be helpful for that child and you have a way to make it happen, I'm kind of open to it. So, you know, I think that we do listen, but Sarah, did you do differently with your case managers?
3: No, I definitely, I agree. And the collaboration is really important. I I do like to hear why someone wants to go, you know, in a certain direction. And sometimes we have, you know, two opposing teams of, you know, let's do it this way versus let's do it that way. And, and what I've, what I've discovered is that it's also nice to give the client choices to tell them there are two ways we could proceed here and there, neither of them is wrong. What works best for you? And I, I like to, like you said, give them some control, empower them to be part of our decision, decision-making process. Like if it's something simple, like how much information to share with a child, right? Some people say all the information. Some people say only as much as necessary, right? So let's get the parents and the family involved in the process too. So, you know, yeah.
2: Is there, a, is there a certain like mantra though or, some, or something that you kind of get, you know, with, with the team to let's uh, say, keep them motivated, keep them, uh, you know, dealing with the monotony of, of day in and day out, dealing with such hard situations.
0: I don't think there's necessarily a mantra. That would be nice though. If you have one, I'm happy to hear I it. Like, um, I don't have one. <laughs> don't have one. <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have a mantra, but um, we do try, especially we have a case managers meeting once a once a week. And we do really try to, applaud the happenings uh, you know, of something that someone did. You know, If there's something that someone did that, that week that really was out of the box or you know, something that really just, they made something happen that we didn't think was going to be able to be you know, possible or um, they really made something that they felt like was a small thing they did that really made a big difference. Um, we do try to celebrate those things. We do try to talk about it. We do try to um, you know, let others know And I think, you know, even amongst just the case managers. And I think that that does motivate them to realize, like, you are being appreciated and you are being um, recognized for the the hard work you did or for the thing that you were able to accomplish that nobody thought. Can you give an example
2: of of some of those things that happened?
0: Um, I'm
3: trying to think.
0: I'm sure
2: there are. But next, put me on the spot.
3: Um, Sarah go first. (laughs) Yes, I know I'm the guest host. Sorry. You're the guest.
0: Right.
2: Right. Um, oh, no, look last week, last week, I love that. We did what we did for, uh, uh, for one of our clients where we arranged uh it was the last day of treatment and we arranged a limo to go pick her up, to take her to the last day of treatment and drove her and drove her back. I think that was, that was incredible. That was awesome. So, you know, something like that, like kind of out of the box, right? Like that was something that a case manager came uh, came up with and, and literally from beginning to end, just arranged it.
3: Those are, those things are super, you know, they're nice, they're exciting. They're big. I like the smaller wins when somebody helps someone get over something that they're feeling stuck with, you know, like a, like a personal change that suddenly there's a new realization and it puts them on a better trajectory that those for me are super exciting. I know it's not as cool as a limo. But no, last week, I think
2: uh, last week one of our uh, volunteer coordinators called me um, at, at like eight o'clock at night to tell me about this win that she was able to get a girl to go to camp. And she was so excited about it. And it was just because, you know, she was sharing with me, like your, like, in your story, Dr. Cheryl, the, she, she, the community that it took to get this person to sign up to go to camp Simplan and me to go. And she was so proud of it. And, you know, that was just like a small win. And I think that that's, you know, that's something to be just as celebrated as the helicopter rides yes. and limo, limo, yeah. limo rides. Exactly. But, but I think it's important, you know, both aspects are, are part of high lifeline and that's, yes. you know, that's, those are things. So donors, you might hear that like, Oh, high lifeline got this, you know, and we got a lot of traction actually on that on, 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 the limo? on, Insta- on Instagram and Facebook about that post
3: positive, positive or people
2: were like really pumped up about it. But, you know, if we were to share the same, when, about this girl going to camp i don't know that we would not get the exciting. same right i don't My know that goodness. we would
0: get
3: the same kind of tangible yeah but, but from the back end it, it is huge and when you have this impact on someone that um sets them on a better like things are just going to be better now either they let someone in and they accepted help or they accepted their situation and now they're working towards how can we make the best of this whatever Th- those type of things are 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 also They're, they're equally as important, really. Just right. just a little right. less. So
2: sorry, sorry, Doctor Shell, we interrupted. Do you have yes. do you have anything well, that you can uh, share?
0: I I can think of one story uh, where there was a child who came in from I believe it was Israel. I, don't know, I can't be sure about that, but he was coming in from some else. He was moving to New York, and he needed to be specifically near the hospital um in the city and he needed to go to school He's a young child only was like three or four years old wanted needed to be in school near this hospital and most schools were saying no most schools were saying that they um they didn't want to take this responsibility the child i believe had seizures and didn't want to take the responsibility and there was one school that was saying yes however it cost a lot of money it's a school in the, you know manhattan they charge a lot of money because they need to charge a lot of money um And they weren't able to really give much of a discount. They had given a little bit of a discount. Um, Our case manager had reached out to the school itself and then tried um, to get a little bit more of a discount, got a little bit more of a discount, um, but the family was still short, you know, um, quite a, a couple thousand dollars, I think it was, at the end of the day. And the case manager really reached out to a bunch of different places, a bunch of different organizations, um, including Fund, who gave some money as well. And... We were able to make it happen that that child ended up in that school. And that, I think was amazing, you know, um, or the times where the case manager was able to have a, a family was waiting for a, um, a wheelchair accessible van for literally years from, I think through the government agencies and all that, and it wasn't coming through. And they found also another organization, um, here that actually fits your van. And makes it wheelchair accessible. And this family literally, within days from when this whole process started, uh, until um, I think she she called the family and said, "Yeah, they're going to do it. They're going to take care of your van." And a couple of weeks later, the van was being delivered, like you know, fixed and changed. And and the life, this family's life changed completely. They're able to go out now and able to do things. You know, so I think those are huge wins. Um, to more anything similar to like you were saying, the wins of. Convincing a family that maybe they really should go to a retreat and hearing the feedback at the end, of, it was amazing for us and life changing for us. And my husband spoke in a group but has never talked up about his feelings before, you know, or a mother saying, I've never talked in a group before. And I, I felt so validated and heard by all the other people in the group. So, you know, I think it's okay, We get invited feeling.
3: to more of those. I knew you were going to go
2: there, well, you know what? Not on Come the podcast, <laughs> not on the podcast. On the podcast. <laughs>
3: I'll call you later. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I was like, "Is she gonna do oh, it?" Yes, I I'm gonna, gonna do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, so I, I think as a as a as a as a senior uh, senior senior team leader in High Lifeline, um, you must have other counterparts that you work with um, in various different areas. You know, people in camp, people who run the who run camp Simcha, people overseas. Um, I'm curious uh, it, with, within within your team. Do, do you have any any relationships that? Um, are supportive that you're working together um, in a specific way. That's just something that the world should hear about in, within High Lifeline. That's interesting.
0: I mean, I think the High Lifeline world is a team. You know, uh, we at our staff meetings, even at our case managers' meeting, we have Rifki Schwartz, Zuckerman, Riffy, um, and Rifko Reichman come. You know, from camp, um, and we really do work as for each child uh, that there is a team that that's working with that child. So. From the goals that they we may talk about that they have you know, during camp to what we're doing, working with during the year, um, to the volunteer coordinators that we work with who really do, you know, we're all part of this one team trying to figure out what's best for this child.
2: And, um, and when you say, do you, do you guys innovate new programs? Would you say that are there new ideas? And, and I'm curious, like, how do those do, do they come together as a group? Do you guys do that together? Like sometimes I'm always astounded by what things that, that, you know, New York comes out with for, for the rest of High lifeline. And I'm just curious, how do you, how do you get there? Where, what, what, where does that, where do those ideas come
3: from? I think most,
0: you know, new programs and things like that, um, start out from us talking about a need that there is some sort of need, let's say our, um, when we started that moving on program, let's say, for example, you know, uh, which, we had for a couple of years, which were really like 16-year-olds, 15, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds um, who were starting to get ready to graduate from Camp Simcha, Club, graduate from High Lifeline. And we were talking about the need for them to help with that, you know, for us to help with that transition. And so through the need, we came up with the idea of, of having the Moving On program, which, you know, at that time we had had a, Sarah Schreier, who's now become one of our case managers actually led that program with Richter Eichmann. And they used to go to people's houses and really talk about the transition and really try to plan and come up with some sort of goals and, and, and a plan for that child over the next couple of years to help them transition from when they have the support of you know, the full supportive high lifeline to when, you know, they really do graduate from us and move on to the next phase of their life. And so that, you know, things like that. I think, you know, that's an example just of one of the times that you know, the need kind of propels the,
2: um, so so, so it comes about through the, through the need and really understanding. So, but I, but I think it's important to, to, to point out that you need an intimate knowledge of your clients' issues and your clients, you know, what's going on in their lives to be able to pinpoint that need. And I think that speaks to, to any business, really, you really need that intimate understanding of what's going on with a particular product or a particular idea, and I think in, in you know uh, obviously they're very different, but but to speak of high lifelines case managers and the amount of clients that each case manager has and the amount of relationships that they've built, and for them to know what's going on in a particular situation i mean it's 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 pretty impressive, and for them to be able to say, "Hey, you know what? I think this would make a great program and I know um a lot of high lifelines programs over the years have just come about through necessity like we we need to start a homework club okay well now i shine. like like i shine begins and it's like this entire new division of high lifeline will spring up out of nowhere almost right because hey there was an an intimate need from a case manager who noticed that something was going on and said like we need we need this this needs to happen so that's, uh, that's incredible.
0: We do have our case managers often ask, you know, families, like kind of what their wish lists were. You know, we don't, we don't like to assume we know what they would want. Um, really it is more ask, ask the cases, ask your clients, what are things that they've been asking you for that we haven't been able to fulfill up until now that they would really love? Um, we have a whole list of things, you know, we have, we have the money, we have a whole list of, you know, more things that we'd be able to do.
2: So this is where we flash the donate here. Button, right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh no but it's it's all about empowering you're saying to a client what do you think it's the same as with staff every time they come and say well what should i do what should i do okay what do you think tell me what you're thinking about doing i'm like yes it's i could give you what i think is the answer but it's it's about giving it right back to them and, and saying you know you're the expert on you mm-hmm. so
2: that's uh yeah. that's such an important leadership tactic that's so intact like is so important to, for clients, but also you mentioned employees, right? Yep, like for staff, absolutely. it's, it's, you know, pe- we hire people who are intelligent or capable. And sometimes yeah. I think they forget that.
3: Yeah. Or, or it's a big decision or confidence or it's new. There's so many reasons why people come and ask, what would you do? But, but, but most of the people here, like you said, Cheryl, they have mm-hmm. a <laughs> They really do. It's absolutely. not just New York. Okay, I feel better. No, no I mean
2: I, I will say we, we don't have such political staff meetings that in Canada but no,
3: so what no but but there definitely are disagreements
1: and uh... sure, sure. when it comes to the family stuff I've, I've seen as a volunteer coordinator definitely making decisions based on what the family's needs are and whatever's happening at the time yeah there's going to be disagreements because there's always disagreements with one person's opinion versus another opinion and it's just somewhere in the middle, they always meet and there's always that compromise that does happen. So it's just trying to gear them into that direction. So we're
2: coming toward the end of the podcast and there's a couple of things that I wanna kind of get to. Um, You know, as a a strong Jewish woman um, who has a lot of responsibilities um, at work, at home, you know, I'm always in amazement actually um particularly with the with the with all with all the women here in high lifeline in Canada and how they manage to you know juggle all of the responsibilities that go on in their home life and at work and it's 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 an incredible thing. I'm curious how do you de-stress? What is what is what does Dr. Cheryl do to take a step back and take care of herself because we all we're always telling people how important it is for them to take care of themselves when they're dealing with a sick child. But um, sometimes I wonder how our staff um, does that. And I'm curious what what you can share that I could employ perhaps even here in Canada. Uh,
0: so I would definitely say it's the quality of time with my family. You know, I don't have one. I would say, you know, even with my children, I don't have a huge amounts of time. I, I, you know, my hours are long. Um, and so, you know, during the week, I really wouldn't say that I have you know, a lot of time with them. Um, but it's, it's quality time. And I think that, you know, as much as we can on weekends and over weekends, I really do think that that's kind of what grounds me is knowing is, is really watching that balance of having, you know, family and having, you know, my children around me and things like that and, and spending time with them, which allows me then to do what I do do during the week, you know, and even those times where we're interrupted, what we're doing, but it's, on a Sunday, let's say we're doing something with the family, and then I get a phone call and I have to take it, but I still ground myself because I have my kids there, you know? And I think that that's a big piece for me and and, um, a big distressor, de stressor for me, I would say is so, that, you know, when you're not on, you know, you're, you're always on. Okay, I like we're always on. Uh, you know, our phone really is 24-6. Um, but at the same time, when I'm not actively involved in it, I really try to. Be very focused. So how I, do you I, separate so yourself from
1: the casework you have to, you're, you're managing from your family life? Um, are you able to walk in your front door and say, okay, I'm home now. I have to concentrate on what's happening here. Or is what's happening at work still partly there, like halfway there? I know you just said like on Sundays, if you're like out with your family, like you'll take a call, but like when you walk in at home, like I know everything is still, it has to still be there somehow.
0: So we, we, I try, I would say that I, I do try that you walk in and you can kind of put your phone down for a little bit and, and really focus. Um, I don't think it goes away. I think that there are moments where it definitely creeps in, you know, when you take it into a doctor's appointment and they're crying from getting a shot and you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, all these parents who like do this every day with their kids um, and it hits you. And I think there are moments where it really does hit you. And then there are moments where you say like, okay, I, I need to. Separate myself and actively separate myself and say like that's their story, not mine. You know, similar to like what I was saying before. I think it's it's hard. It's a struggle. I I don't think that there's an easy answer to it. I think it's a struggle. I try very hard. If it's not an emergency and it's not you know after hours, I try very hard to you know tell somebody that if it's not time sensitive, let's talk Monday or let's you know um, let's talk a little later. If it's something that's time sensitive or that they really need. That then then we're here, and my kids realize that too. You know, they understand it in their own ways. Of you know, mommy has to help somebody else who who needs help right now, and then I'm coming back to you. And so we try. It's a balance. It's I don't know. I think every mother in the world tries who's working or who has other responsibilities. It's a struggle and it's a balance that they constantly are dealing with.
3: Can I ask you yeah. the same questions, Sarah? No, <laughs> <Fair enough.
1: laughs> I mean, you have a little one at home too. So, I mean, it's
3: right. Um, I think, like you said, some, sometimes, sometimes they're easier than other times. You never know what's going to say, oh, look, I'm at this doctor's appointment. Sometimes you get a little extra scared because you've seen the other, the other options, right? Right. the other possibilities. And um, it's a constant struggle.
2: You know, I, I will say that, um, you know, my children really grew up with me working at high life. I grew up at high lifeline, Frank, but uh, my children grew up watching me at high high lifeline. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was um, to take the time. I I think it was Rabbi Scholar who gave it to me actually was um, Friday night. When you sit down and you unwind the week and you talk about, you know, what it is that we accomplished at high lifeline, all the amazing things, whether it was the limo or the fundraising or anything that happened, when you sit down and you tell your kids look what we did we accomplished these things it wasn't me we as a family all came together and this is what we were able to do and you make them part of the con- of the conversation You make the kids part of that discussion it's extremely extremely beneficial they they don't they you know they, they know i'm gone a lot they know i'm busy i'm working i'm here i'm there and you know there, there are days sometimes i'm home for very short periods of time and, and I don't see them for a couple days or two or three days at, at a point at a time, but if they know what I'm doing and they know what I'm accomplishing, um, they feel good about it and they feel like they're a part of it. And if we, if I make sure to make them a part of it, it's very important. So, yeah. I
0: think my kids also love the perks of title So we try very much to say, like, we're going to mommy's camp, you know, when we go to a retreat, they're going to mommy's camp so that they do recognize like, yes, yeah, it is hard when, you know, I have to take that phone call or I have to do that, whatever. But there are some little perks you get, you know, we go on a holiday trip and you get the bomb. that's that's a perk and, and they enjoy them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to say thank you so much for uh, for sharing your story, sharing your ideas. Really, uh, really appreciate it. And um, truly uh, seeing seeing what you guys accomplish in New York, we're in awe of it here in, in Canada. And it's it's incredible uh, that all the things that you do, you're a blessing to clients for all. Thank you very much for uh, for your time today. And um, I don't know if anyone else has anything they want to add.
3: I appreciate you because I'm learning from you. Great. I want to be like you when I go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, please.
2: Okay, well, thank you very much and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you, thank you very, very much to it's all our time. listeners today. Have a great day.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you Dr. Book for your time and sharing your story and insight with us. It's always amazing how some stories come full circle. Started off as a client and ended up as the director of family services. Being in that position or as a case manager is not one to be taken lightly. They almost become part of the family, if not. And it is very difficult at times to be able to remove yourself and separate themselves from what's going on with the clients and their own families at times. Knowing when to take a step back and a break is very important for their own mental health, and well-being. Thank you again, Dr. Book, and thank you to the listeners for choosing to be with us today. Until next time. On Air with is a High Lifeline Canada project produced by myself, Brian Strasberg, hosted by myself and the executive director of High Lifeline Canada, Mordechai Rothman. Guests are booked by Orly Davis and graphic design is done by Candice Alper. On Air with is edited by myself and the music is provided by Music Unlimited at pixabay.com. To learn more about High Lifeline and how you can help us, please visit our website at highlifelinecanada.org. Don't forget to subscribe and give us that 5-star rating, and of course, share it with all your friends.